Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Samantha Joel, who is an assistant professor at Western University. Her research examines how people make the decisions that grow or break apart their romantic relationships. We're going to be talking about the most fascinating things that Sam's research tells us about sex, dating, and love. For example, does having sex with an ex-partner help or hinder recovery from a breakup? What happens when a couple decides to open up their relationship? Does it change the quality of that relationship over time? Can computers predict who you're attracted to before you even meet another person? And why is it easier to get into a relationship than to get out of one? I'm so excited for this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Sam, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I haven't seen you in ages, so I'm really excited to catch up with you and discuss some of your latest work. Now, before we dive into your data, I always like to begin by asking my guests about their professional journey. So can you tell us a little bit about your backstory? How did you come to be a scientist who studies decision-making in romantic relationships? Sure. Well, I I started off an English major, actually. I'm from a small town in northern Canada in the Maritimes, and I wasn't really aware of the things that one can do in university. You know, English was my favorite subject in school, so I thought I would like that in university. Uh, But they make you take a science elective. So I took psychology because that seemed like, you know, an interesting choice. And, And then we got to this unit about relationships, and it sort of blew my mind that studying relationships is a thing that one can do with one's life. There were people out there doing that. And that was really, really exciting to me. I changed my major to psychology. I took more social psychology, cognition. And when I took cognition, I got to this decision-making unit. I thought, oh, wow, this would be so great to merge with the relationship work. What about how people make choices about relationships? And then I tried to find an advisor who I could work under who was doing that. And no one was really doing that. There were JDM people, judgment and decision-making people over in one camp, and there were relationships people over in another camp. And I couldn't really find a lot of work merging the two. And luckily, Jeff McDonald gave me a lot of academic freedom while I was his grad student to bring the decision-making elements in to our work. And so that's, that's sort of the origin story. So it sounds like you kind of had to create your own research area, which is kind of cool because I don't know a lot of people who are doing the work that you're doing, but I think it's so interesting, fascinating, and important. So really looking forward to diving into it. Now, one of my favorite studies of yours that you've conducted is about romantic attraction. So you published a set of studies a couple of years ago on whether machine learning algorithms can predict initial attraction between two people. So can you tell us a little bit about this research and specifically how well can computer programs predict who we're going to be attracted to? And do you think it's possible that online dating companies can create algorithms that can actually make it easier to find love? 
Yeah, well, that was very much the question we were trying to answer because, of course, there are dating websites that claim or at least imply that they're able to do this, you know, take different people's traits and preferences and feed them into some sort of algorithm and tell you who you're going to be a good match with. But, you know, those algorithms tend to be proprietary and you can't see what they're actually doing. So we thought, well, let's see if we can get similar results using machine learning, specifically the random forests algorithm, which is really good at taking lots and lots of predictors and trying to predict an outcome. We had these speed dating data, so just single undergrads paired with each other for these little short four-minute interactions, just, just enough time to kind of get a thin slice of someone. And so beforehand, they completed these enormous questionnaires. We had all kinds of things, their traits, their political views, what they were looking for in a partner. I think we had over 100 different traits and preferences and different variables that are supposed to matter. So we put these into our machine learning algorithm. We tried to predict attraction. And we found we could predict attraction at sort of a broad level. So we could predict kind of who's hot and who's not, who tended to be more attractive overall across all the people they were paired with, and also who was more or less choosy. So who tended to be attracted to more people in general. But what we couldn't do that was really the question we were interested in was, you know, predicting your attraction to a specific person. Can you actually pair? Can you match people? Can I say, well, you're generally attractive and I'm generally attracted to people, but am I uniquely attracted to you? And we couldn't predict that at all. Less than, less than zero variance explained. <laughs> um, basically, you're just better off predicting the grand mean for every observation than you are using these models. They didn't work whatsoever. So we were pretty shocked by that. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's reminding me of this conference I was at a few years ago where there was a data scientist present from one of the big dating companies. I'm not going to mention which one, but someone in the audience asked this person, they said, so do you have any data showing that this matching algorithm that you have works better than just people randomly matching up? And the, the scientist's response was, those data don't exist yet. And I was like really taken aback by that. And I thought, wow, like you have a lot of these companies that are saying, you know, here are our algorithms. Here's the way that we're matching people up. They don't tell you what the algorithms are, or how they work, but they tout this really high success rate. And I think there's a lot of skepticism about, you know, how well do those things actually work and are they overselling and maybe under delivering on some of the promises that they make? I think I was at that. Was it the pre-conference at SPSP? I seem to recall so. some. Yeah, someone said, you know, well, do you ever use a control group? Do you ever match people randomly and compare the results? And their their answer was quite amazing because it was something like, well, it it would be unethical to to have. Uh, basically a placebo group because matching people is so important. We couldn't possibly not give them our amazing algorithm, have a control group. So I thought that was quite an incredible <laughs> answer. Certainly is. So yeah, so it sounds like it's much harder than you might think to 
come up with a computer program that's going to predict love. And it's not to say that it's impossible. Maybe it's just they're not looking at the right variables yet. And, you know, maybe some of these companies are looking at other variables that you didn't consider in your work because we don't know what's going into their programs. So I think there's a lot of questions that remain. And, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see what happens in the future in terms of how we meet and match with our partners. But since we're on the subject of machine learning, you also published a study recently on whether computer programs can predict relationship quality. So can you tell us what you found there? And specifically, what are some of the key things that do and don't predict the quality of our relationships? And can you tell, you know, who's going to experience an increase or decrease in the quality of their relationship over time? I know that's a big question, so (laughs) feel free to take it in parts. Sure. Yeah, so this was quite a massive undertaking. We had over 80 collaborators from 29 different research labs from Canada and the U.S. and uh, New Zealand and Israel, I think a couple of other countries as well. And so we just had in total, I think 20,000 couples, you know, tracked over time. And so similar to the attraction study, we took everything the people had measured. And these were different studies, different samples. So in each study, we just took anything that was measured and tried to predict relationship quality at baseline. So at the first time point when participants were uh, surveyed and then over time as they were followed, uh, because these were all longitudinal studies. And we found that we could predict relationship quality very well using other relationship variables. So if I ask you about your relationship and you tell me things like how much conflict you have um, and how much intimacy you have and how close you feel, how much you trust your partner and sexual satisfaction was a good predictor, uh, might be particularly relevant to this podcast. Those things are going to collectively predict about 50% of the variance in how happy you are with your partner right now. But what was really odd is those same variables collected from the partner's perspective only predicted 16% of the variance, which is much, much less. And this really surprised me because everybody's reporting on the same relationship, right? Both partners are presumably experiencing the the same conflicts, the same you know, the same good, the same bad, you would think that there would be more agreement and that my partner's ratings of those things would also predict my satisfaction. But that wasn't the case. Traits didn't do very well either. So my traits are going to predict about 25% of how happy I am, but my partner's traits only 5%, which again, is just really low. So everything about your partner, how agreeable they are, how extroverted they are, attachment style, political orientation, all collectively explaining only 5% of the variance in how happy I am with that person almost suggests that the specific individual you choose is not, (laughs) the the (laughs) traits that they contain is that it's not, it doesn't seem to be driving a lot of the, the variance. And then you asked about change. We really couldn't predict change. We could predict baseline, but we couldn't predict whether relationships got better or worse over time, really with any accuracy. So that suggests that, you know, whether a relationship improves or deteriorates over time, it's probably based on environmental factors that hadn't been measured yet. You know, what what happens in your life rather than 
something where you can see the writing on the wall. Yeah, I think that points to the fact that relationships are just kind of inherently unpredictable in terms of how they're going to unfold over the long term. I think a lot of us would like to think like, oh, we can take certain things that we measure now and we can predict like whether a relationship is actually going to last. But we might not be able to do that because we don't know all of the things that are going to change over time. And that poses another problem going back to the online dating algorithm that we were discussing. Yeah, you know, you might be able to predict initial attraction, but can you actually predict whether a couple is going to be happy over the long run? And doing that based on limited information at the outset is really, really hard to do. So yeah, it's <laughs> relationships are pretty unpredictable. And it also sounds like what matters most is how you feel in your relationship. And that also reminds me of some things I've discussed on other podcasts where two people can be in a relationship and just experience it totally differently. You know, I, I was even talking to a guest before where we were discussing consensually non-monogamous and open relationships and how some people don't even agree on whether their relationship is open or not. Like they just have totally different experiences sometimes of their relationships. So I would suspect that must be why the, the partner effects aren't really contributing in those models. And it's really just more about how you feel than anything else. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's very much the, the takeaways that a lot a lot of what goes into a relationship, particularly change over time, seems to be somewhat chaotic. We can't capture it at baseline. We haven't thus far. So it sounds like what we need is a chaos theory of relationships. <laughs> now, something else you've studied are the decisions that people make about whether they're going to stay in a relationship or whether they're going to leave. And one of the things that you found in your work is that a lot of people feel a lot of ambivalence about their relationships. They have reasons for wanting to stay. They have reasons for wanting to go. And what that ultimately means is that it's not this like really easy, straightforward decision about stay versus go. So given all of this ambivalence, you know, what actually predicts when people make the decision to break up? What have you learned about when people decide to, to actually make that leap? That's a really good question. So the the sort of the deepest dive I've done into stay leave decisions was qualitative work where I recruited people online who were actively thinking about leaving and asked them about their reasons for wanting to stay and wanting to go. And exactly as you said, even though, I mean, we recruited people who were specifically actively thinking about leaving. So of course there was lots wrong with these relationships. They had lots of reasons for wanting to leave. Those same people also had lots of reasons for wanting to stay. You know, most relationships aren't all bad and they would be able to list positive aspects of the relationship or at least reasons why they were afraid of singlehood. We didn't track them over time to see you know, whether they ultimately stayed or went and, and what went into that decision. But I tend to think that the decision often comes down to some sort of catalyst. So often people are uh, struggling with this choice and then some something happens in their environment that sort of solidifies the decision for them. You know, we know from Facebook data that breakups are really common around Valentine's Day. I think that makes sense as a catalyst. This is a day where you're directly asked by society to sort of assess your relationship and you maybe you don't like what you find. But we've also found that when people are in an ambivalent state, we've tracked people day to day in terms of their ambivalence and wanting to stay and wanting to go. And again, there's this high susceptibility to 
what happened that day. So you're feeling ambivalent. There's good things. There's bad things. You're not sure what to do. Your partner does some small, nice thing for you that day. And you think, oh, you know what? This relationship really is worth maintaining. I'm going to get off the fence. I'm going to try to make it work. The next day, you do some small thing that irritates you and you're over to the other side. So we know that ambivalence leads to this susceptibility to influence where small events can really move your opinion around because it's not stable. Yeah. I think something else you found in some of that work about this sense of ambivalence people have about their relationships, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was people who were higher in attachment anxiety, you know, people who have more fear of abandonment, concerns that their partner's going to leave, they tend to feel more of those ambivalent feelings where they're, they got the push and pull in different directions. So do you think that means that some people are sort of more susceptible to ambivalent feelings and maybe just kind of always have ambivalent feelings in their relationships, maybe because they've got kind of like a deeper inner conflict or turmoil about, you know, in, in problems with trust when it comes to their partners and relationships? Yeah, it's certainly possible that there's an individual difference component to this. I do think it's interesting that anxiously attached people tend to be ambivalent about whether to stay or not, because the way that we tend to paint anxiously attached individuals is as people who are terrified that their partner is going to leave them. And it's, it's a very different image thinking about them wondering, not, am I good enough for my partner, but actually is my partner good enough for me? And I kind of wonder if this might be a downstream consequence of settling more earlier on and sort of letting more things slide earlier on in the relationship that then become bigger problems later. Yeah, so interesting. Now, another kind of decision that people have to make in the world of dating and relationships is, well, do I go for this opportunity? Or do I, you know, risk potential rejection, right? Being rejected obviously hurts. Nobody likes to be rejected. But fear of rejection can ultimately lead to regret, right? Which is why we hear many people talk about, oh, the one that got away, right? Um, because you got so afraid to approach someone that you didn't do it because you were worried they were going to reject you. And then uh, you missed out on that opportunity for, for love. And you published a study recently looking at whether people are more afraid of a missed opportunity or afraid of being rejected. So what did you find there? Which one worries us more? Yeah, we, we found that when people thought about both of these negative outcomes, obviously they're both negative outcomes, you know, shooting your shot, getting shut down versus the one that got away. We found that the one that got away was a more threatening prospects to people. And this seemed to be because of its its long-term implications. So, you know, rejection is painful, but it's a, it's an acute pain. You'll probably, probably get over it. It's painful immediately, and then you get past it. But missing out on the opportunity to be with someone who could have been an amazing partner, that's potentially years of reward. And so that long-term consequence seems to really bother people, you know, perhaps more in, when, when they think about it long-term than the fleeting pain of, of being rejected. Yeah, no, that has me wondering whether maybe there are some differences across individuals here, right? Because we know that some people are more rejection sensitive than others. And so I'm wondering if you took rejection sensitivity into account and maybe whether the pattern is different for them. And also, is there a gender difference here? You know, do, for example, do men and women have 
different concerns about, you know, missing out on an opportunity versus being rejected. Any thoughts there? Yeah, we did look at both those things. So the rejection sensitivity, yeah, you might expect the people who are more sensitive to rejection would think that rejection is worse. And they do, but they also think that missed opportunities are worse and the two sort of cancel each other out. So we didn't actually get an effect there overall in terms of which is worse. And I think that makes sense because rejection sensitivity, is it's not just about not wanting to be rejected. It's also a fear of not having anybody and missed opportunities play into that as well. You know, my colleague, Steph Spielman has done a lot of interesting work around fear of singlehood and the same people who fear rejection tend to also fear singlehood because it's about not having someone, not having that connection. And so both are threatening. So it's really this, again, with the ambivalence, this heightened ambivalence of Both are worse for rejection-sensitive people. In terms of gender, we didn't find any gender effects. Uh, A lot of people, including reviewers, thought that we would find gender effects. We looked and looked, uh, couldn't couldn't find any. So so there you have it. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. I I think the rejection sensitivity thing and the link to fear of singlehood makes a lot of sense. It, It is a little surprising about the lack of a gender difference just when you think about other research that's out there showing that men tend to regret their sexual inactions more than women do. So men tend to regret the the opportunities that they missed out on. And by contrast, women tend to regret more of their sexual actions, their actual behaviors uh, compared to men. So that was why I asked that question. So it's, it's interesting that you didn't find an effect there. But so we have much more to discuss, including whether sex with an ex is a good idea, and why getting into relationships is harder than getting out of them. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Promescent has everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom. It has Target's own technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Samantha Joel, who studies how people make the decisions that grow and break apart their relationships. Before the break, we were talking about romantic rejection and how people are less afraid of being rejected than missing out on an opportunity for love. Now, you've done another study of rejection that I wanted to discuss, which found that people seem to have a harder time rejecting other people than they anticipated. So in other words, we overestimate our ability to reject somebody that we don't think is a good match for us. So can you tell us a little bit about why that is? Why is it so hard to reject somebody else? Yeah, so so this is one of my more surprising findings, I think. So we looked at a couple of 
different ways in which you might want to reject someone. So in one study, we we had unattractive photos. In another study, we actually had incompatible traits. So we asked people to list what their deal breakers were, and then we gave them a, a dating profile that, you know, magically had exactly the things they didn't want, according to their free testing survey. And in both cases, we we randomly assigned people to either a hypothetical or real condition. So we either told them, okay, so we're sorry, but we couldn't get other people into the lab at the same time that you're here. So these, these dating profiles you're looking at are just from a different session. We just want you to pretend that they're here, but they're not. And so, you know, they thought that this wasn't a real situation. Other participants were told this is a real dating situation. These these people are actually here. And if you say yes, you're going to get to go on a date with them. And then, you know, we paired it with the information that would make them want to reject the person. And what we found was that in the, in the hypothetical, more people said, oh, yeah, well, I, I probably wouldn't go on a date with that person because you know, because they're not, they're not my type. We're not compatible. When they thought the situation was real, they were much more likely to say yes. And we found that this was mediated by not wanting to hurt the person's feelings. So when, when it's a real person and you're talking about saying no to a real person, you know, people don't want to make them feel bad. And we thought this was really interesting because, you know, they didn't even meet in person. It's not like they had to reject someone to their face, but just the knowledge that there's a real person on the other side who had said yes to them. That was part of the scenario too. Yeah. And so they were like expressing willingness to go out on a date with somebody that they didn't even want to go out with. And it's like, wow, that's, um, how is that going to turn out well for, for anybody here? And, you know, the results of this study just kind of have me thinking about how this, kind of fear we have of rejecting others or the reluctance that we we feel around it leads to a lot of turmoil and conflict in our relationships and in our dating lives. So for example, it might lead somebody to lead another person on, you know, give them false hope that you're interested and you actually want to start a relationship. And then, you know, that leads to a lot of hurt feelings down the line. It also makes me wonder about how maybe this sort of concern about wanting to reject somebody else how does that play out in the world of online dating so maybe it's easier to just ghost someone and or or maybe block them on an app than it is to you know directly come out and say like i'm sorry i'm just not into you so <laughs> do you have any thoughts on that and how this you know reluctance to reject others might actually be uh, you know part of the problem and part of the reason why we have so much anxiety about dating and relationships Certainly. I mean, with with online dating, you can't possibly say yes to everybody. So one of the issues with online dating is that you're simply inundated with choice. There are so many options, more options than you can possibly sift through, certainly more options than you can meet up with. And so you you have to, you are forced to reject most options, which I think is a is a frustrating experience for people, particularly because you can't you can't really search by the criteria that you really care about with the dating profile. Typically, you have some very concrete criteria that you can search by, but you can't search by, you know, do I enjoy this person's smile? Do they tend to make references that I find funny? You know, a lot of the things that that really capture interest 
you can't search through those things. And so I think that's part of why a lot of people find online dating to be a very tedious process. But certainly in terms of rejection and the difficulty with rejecting people, you know, it only gets more difficult the stronger a connection you form with someone, the more that you've invested in them, the more they've invested in you and you know that you're wasting that investment on both sides. So I think it just gets harder and harder as a relationship moves along to reject a person, which is part of why we were surprised by these these findings, because this is when rejection should be at its absolute easiest. You haven't even met in person yet. There's kind of minimal, minimal cost to saying no. Yeah, but I think at the same time, it shows we care about other people's feelings. So we're not all assholes. Now, our next topic is XX. Now, when a relationship ends, it's actually not that uncommon for some type of sexual relationship to continue. And in fact, in some studies I've seen, as many as one in four people say that they had sex with their ex at some point following their breakup. And people do this for a wide range of reasons. Now, a lot of people would look at this and say, oh, that's a terrible idea. You know, it's going to prevent you from moving on with your life, right? But is that really the case? Can you tell us what you found about how XX impacts breakup recovery? Sure. Uh, Well, long story short, it doesn't, according to our data. So this this project was spearheaded by my colleague, Seth Spielman. With this project, we... This was part of a larger project where we recruited people in relationships and followed them over time because I was really interested in trying to predict breakups. But when people reported that a breakup had just happened, we also enrolled them in this daily diary study where they told us about their breakup experience each day for a month. So we had this sample of people who had just experienced a breakup, and then we kind of tracked their breakup recovery over the course of a month. Very similar to work that uh, David Sparra has done. And one of the things we asked was, have you had any contact with your ex? Have you had sex with your ex today, this week? And we didn't find that uh, sex with an ex predicted breakup recovery, either on the day or in terms of the trajectory over time. So that was kind of interesting that it didn't seem to get in the way, at least with our sample. Yeah, so XX isn't necessarily a bad thing, you know, and I've read lots of media articles saying, oh, it's a terrible idea, just like never do it, never go there. But, you know, your work and the work of others has found that, you know, either there is no effect or, you know, in some cases, it can have a positive effect where it kind of promotes some healing for that individual, It, it helps them to move on in their relationship in some way. Of course, by the same token, there are others who are hoping that they're going to get back together. And so this, you know, might give them false hope. So I think it's one of those things where it probably depends on what are your motivations for doing it? And what are you hoping to get out of this in in terms of what the ultimate impact is? So I guess I would encourage people to ask that question about why am I doing this (laughs) in terms of whether or not it's a good idea. Now, in a recent paper you published, you talked about how people seem to be biased to make decisions that favor starting and maintaining romantic relationships, which you refer to as a progression bias. You talk about how getting into a relationship is often easier than getting out of one, and that we often prefer to be in a less desirable relationship than to have no relationship at all. I found this paper to be really fascinating, so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about it. So why do relationships kind of have this gravity that 
just pulls us in and tends to keep us there. Yeah, so this is a pattern that I started to notice through my work and the work of many of my colleagues that when I was looking at these decisions, it seemed that decisions that move a relationship forward seem to be kind of the default that people tend to make pro-relationship choices, investing in new relationships, committing to new relationships, often without a lot of deliberation or thought involved, whereas decisions that slow or end a relationship tend to be very difficult and taxing and require a lot of thought. So, you know, for example, there's work on moving in together, people who move in with their partners and interviews with people about having moved in together. And often people will say, well, you know, I was staying at my partner's place kind of more and more and sort of some of my stuff sort of started to drift into their apartment and then my toothbrush was there. Now I got to change of clothes and I'm bringing more clothes and now I'm just never at my old apartment and now it just doesn't make sense to pay rent for my old apartment. So it's this this sliding process that wasn't really a deliberative conscious choice, the way that the relationship just moves along toward a more committed union. Contrast that with what we were talking about with breakup decisions, where people agonize over the decision, weighing the pros and cons, going back and forth. It's just much harder to end a relationship, reject a person, say no, uh, than it is to move that relationship along. So are you saying that it's more a matter of cognitive effort? You know, so when you're thinking about leaving a relationship, it requires not just a lot of thought, but a lot of uncomfortable feelings, you know, at the same time versus when you're getting into a relationship, you know, things are new and exciting. And maybe you don't have as much cognitive capacity because you're in the throes of passion, right? And so you're just thinking about like how great everything is. So I'm just sort of wondering, you know, is this what is this about? Is it a function of like how much mental energy you have to expend at a given point? Or is it about, you know, wanting to maintain a certain mood state or a bit of both? And any thoughts there? Yeah, I think it comes down to reward and pain and relationships tend to be quite rewarding. Connection is rewarding. Rejection is painful. Separation is painful. And when you're... It, experience and when you're in that throes of a new relationship and the rewards of the new relationship, spending time with the person is an investment. So simply pursuing those rewards that that are just intrinsically, the intrinsically positive experience of spending time with a new partner moves the relationship forward, even if that's not the conscious intention. No, No conscious thought or deliberation is required for the relationship to progress. Uh, whereas it, it is required to to put the brakes. Yeah, oh, it's so interesting, and it's got me thinking about my own my own life and <laughs> the romantic lives of others. You know, I'm thinking about, for example, when my partner and I made the decision to move in together 20 plus years ago. You know, there wasn't a lot of thought and effort that like went into that. And me, like, I had to graduate a year early from college and uproot myself, move to a different city, figure out like what my career path was going to be, and like doing all these things like in a flash without putting a lot of great thought and effort into it. Right. And so it is very much what you described. Like, you just kind of like slide into these relationship decisions. And, you know, fortunately, 
for me, things are good with, with how it worked out. I'm you know, still here 20 plus years later. But I know a lot of other people where they slide into it and then they're like, what the fuck just happened? Like, um, how did I get here? <laughs> and, and then you've got that interesting sort of push and pull. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where you've got that ambivalence, like, oh, I've invested all this in the relationship. Why did I do all of this if I didn't wasn't really committed to the relationship. And so I think then you can sometimes have cognitive dissonance kicking in that, you know, people come up with a justification or rationalization for all that effort they put into the relationship. And then that can propel them to stay despite the fact that there might be things going on in the relationship that aren't so great. So I don't know, you just you got my brain going in all kinds of directions now. (laughs) Now, another topic I wanted to explore with you is open relationships. Studies show that about one in five people have been in some type of sexually open relationship before, and there's been a growing amount of research over the last decade exploring the dynamics of these relationships. However, there's never really been a longitudinal study exploring what happens in these relationships over time immediately after people make the decision to open up. That is until you came along. (laughs) So you did, I think, what is really kind of the first longitudinal, like, perspective exploration of, you know, what happens when a couple decides to open up. So can you tell us what you found there? And how did opening up affect the quality of those individuals' relationships? Sure. Yeah, this this project was spearheaded by uh, actually an undergraduate student at the University of Utah, Annalisa Murphy, who was really interested in the decision process around opening up and, you know, what happens when people open up. And she managed to recruit a decent sample of people who were planning to open up but hadn't done so yet, which is, I don't think, a sample that had been recruited previously. Usually we get long-time consensual non-monogamists, and this is sort of at the very beginning of that journey. And then we track them over a couple of months and ask them, you know, so did you actually open up your relationship and how's it going? And we found that um, the sort of the subsample that had opened up compared to the subsample that didn't weren't any different on relationship quality. If I'm recalling accurately, the sample that opened up had a, a boost in sexual satisfaction. So they were happier with their sex lives. Uh, so overall, we got you know, neutral or positive outcomes associated with the choice. Now, I do want to add an important caveat that these were not couples. These were one half of the relationship. And coming back to that finding we talked about (laughs) where the partner effects are much smaller than actor effects, uh, it's not at all clear that if, if we had recruited the partner that they would have agreed that this was such a great idea. And, you know, when you're recruiting people who are thinking about opening up, you tend to get the more enthusiastic half of the couple who's willing to participate in the study and wants to talk about, you know, this choice that they want to make. So it remains to be seen. I wish we had dyadic data. I would love to see dyadic data to see if you get similar effects with the partner, if it matters, if you were the one who initiated the choice or not, and this sort of thing. Yeah, but I think what you found there, it is an important finding because there are a lot of people who just kind of assume, well, if a couple opens up their relationship, it's going to deteriorate, right? Because so many people are under the impression that consensually non-monogamous relationships just can't work or don't work. And, you know, I've heard that from a lot of people over the course of my career. But what you found is that, you know, actually didn't seem to change all that much. And if anything, there were some positive impacts because there was that increase in sexual satisfaction. I think, you know, it would be a really interesting follow-up, like you said, to collect 
data from all the individuals involved and also to track them over a longer period of time because maybe a couple of months isn't quite enough to test the waters. And, you know, you have to imagine that you're going to probably encounter more difficulties in the early stages because it's totally new to you. And the rules that you make regarding openness at the beginning might not be the rules that you have later on because there's often a lot of negotiation and renegotiation because sometimes people make rules that they just end up having a hard time sticking to. So I'd love to see more longitudinal work in that area. But thanks for, you know, sort of being the first there to to do that kind of study. Now, I have one last question for you. So given that you study relationship decision making, has this impacted the decisions that you make in your own love life? So has understanding the research made you a better relationship decision maker? I don't think it's had much of an impact. And I think that's because understanding something intellectually is very different from carrying it out. So, you know, for example, I I was really interested in this idea of hasty investment and people moving relationships forward really quickly. You know, when when I began my research career, but when when I met my husband, we we moved in together within six months. So I was I was very aware of of this phenomenon at that time. It didn't stop me from making that choice. Um, so I I don't know how much simply having the knowledge and awareness of these sorts of phenomena actually change your behavior. Well, that leads me to then one final follow-up question, which is, can we become better relationship decision makers? And, you know, I, I don't know that that's something you've really explored in your work yet, but, but what are your thoughts on that? If, if we better understand the processes behind how all of this works, can we take it and apply it and become better or more effective decision makers in our own lives? Yeah, that is ultimately the question that I very much want to answer. I think I've I've begun with the descriptive, how do people make decisions? But what I want to move on to is the prescriptive. Can we make them better? Can we kind of maximize our odds of picking the right partner, picking a relationship that will last? But the longer that I study this, the more skeptical I am because of that chaotic aspect of relationships. If if we can't predict whether a relationship will improve or decline over time, then how can we help people better attune their decisions to predict better? We can't predict the outcomes at all. So how could we possibly help people improve? If your partner's traits only predict 5% of your relationship quality, does it even matter who you pick? Um, Can you really, is there even a lot of variance there to to improve upon? Uh, So I'm increasingly skeptical that we're going to be able to make much traction there. I think people are very good at loving the one they're with for the most part and making a good relationship out of the person that they wind up with. And I think it's probably more about the relationship you build than the person you choose and those kinds of macro decisions that you make along the way. Yeah, I I love that. I think it's a great point to end on. But I will mention, you did get me thinking, an idea for a new dating app 
it's just it randomly pairs you with somebody else and you just see what happens <laughs> and you know i would love to see what would their success rate be compared to you know some of the other apps that like try to match you based on a matching algorithm so that's the experiment we should uh get together and do at some point i would love to see that and my <laughs> prediction is that it would do better than you might think you know, think about a, a reality TV show like Love is Blind and how many marriages came out of it. What? Yep. You know, I think people will people will progress quite far with a relatively small selection of potential partners. Yep. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Sam. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and maybe even participate in one of your studies? Sure. Well, you can go to relationshipdecisions.org, which is my lab website, where we post about our findings and opportunities for participation. And you can also read about my lovely lab members. And you should also follow Sam on Twitter at Dating Decisions. Uh, occasionally, her tweets go viral. She's always posting interesting things about research and then just also other fun insights she has. So if you're looking to make your Twitter feed a little more interesting every day, be sure to follow Sam. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.